Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. It's my pleasure to introduce Rob Chestnut. He's the author of Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. Rob was Airbnb's chief ethics officer, and before that, their general counsel, and before that, head of global trust and safety at eBay. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. It seems like you had a lot of fun writing this book. I hope to hear lots of stories about uh, what has made up this. But first, I wanted to hear from you. You want to start an ethical revolution? What is an ethical revolution? What did you want to accomplish when you started to write this book? Elizabeth, it's not for me so much of me wanting to start one. I think it's already happening. Uh, The world, I think, just in the last several years, has recognized that um, we are fast connecting together. Uh, the world is connected not just through the internet, uh, but you know you can see things like COVID nineteen. Uh, you can see racial justice, climate change. We're all being pushed to get out of our narrow lanes and think about actually something bigger than just, for example, how much money as a company we can make in a particular quarter. And what we've seen is that companies are getting pushed. They're getting pushed by their employees. They're being pushed by government. They're being pushed by consumers to think more broadly, to have a purpose to do something good in the world uh, beyond just making a profit. And this means that companies now are having to think about what's our purpose? What's the North Star? Why are we good for the world? Uh, And I think companies are increasingly finding themselves under a microscope and they uh, are being pushed to think about bigger issues and doing good in ways that they've never had to do in the past. If you track back a little while, the context that you must have been in starting this writing project is around the time that the Business Roundtable finally came out to remind us that we had a responsibility, not just to our stockholders, but to our stakeholders. That changes everything, doesn't it? It does. I, I think it was a little sudden. I mean, when you think about it, we've had decades and decades of thought around what is the purpose of a company? And it's been very consistent. It's, it's become a mantra, shareholder value. Anything that we do that's good for shareholder value is good. Even if in the pursuit of shareholder value, there are a lot of collateral consequences, a lot of damage being along, done along the way to the environment. Uh, and maybe consumers and to employees. But, you know, we've been marching along, I think, for a long time without questioning that mantra until really just in the last couple of years. And I think what's pushed us there is an understanding that, uh, you know, shareholder value as a mantra is causing um, companies to focus very short term, you know, hit a quarterly profit number. And do things, by the way, that are very good for the leaders of those companies because they're compensated based on the share price. Leads to a lot of selfish behavior. It leads to cutting corners ethically. And it's actually done quite a bit of damage in in the world as a whole. I think we're coming to the realization that we need more from companies. We've got big problems in the world. And I think a lot of us 
are looking at government and wondering, I'm not sure government with all of its partisan politics is going to be leading us out of this. We need companies to step up, take on this challenge of doing good in the world. Well, if we're going to expect companies to do good in the world, we're going to have to redefine the way that we've been looking at corporate purpose. And I, I think the business roundtable, uh, it seemed a little sudden, but I think, in fact, it's overdue. Companies need, to, obviously, they need to focus on making money. They've got to generate a profit in order to finance their activities. But we need companies to think broader. We need them to think about how they can do good for a range of stakeholders that they do business with. Um, and companies that are slow to adopt are finding that they're getting pushed really hard from all quarters to make the adjustment to this new reality. At Airbnb, we used to call this, you know, being a 21st century company. It's a new way of thinking. But companies that if you're not adjusting to this, you're not getting out ahead of it, um, you may find some tough sailing over the next several years. Certainly, we're thinking about how to be better corporate citizens, not only thinking about it, but maybe putting more muscle behind our intention, both being inclusive in the boardrooms and with employees and customers, better stewards of the planet. What are the six-step processes that you've outlined in your book that you think might be helpful for this kind of activity? Well, this was part of the journey we went on at Airbnb. You know, I, I sat down and noticed that the world was changing. Really, the genesis for this book is about four years ago. Uh, me too. And it really struck me that, you know, for the first time, we have individuals speaking up and the Internet gives them a platform to to talk about things that they see that trouble them and get attention for it. Uh, Susan Fowler's blog post at Uber literally changed the entire course of that company. That sort of thing wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. So, you know, in looking at that, we sat down at Airbnb and said, rather learn from other people's mistakes. We're seeing other companies take a lot of shots in this regard. What can we do to be proactive and drive integrity into the culture of the company? And I think in doing so, um, you know, how can we protect the brand and perhaps even drive the brand to be something that we're all proud of? So um, I started really by looking at, well, what have companies done in the past to drive integrity? Well, you know, you start with a code of ethics, but, you know, it's ironic. How do most companies do deal with a code of ethics? They go online, they find someone else's code of ethics, they copy it, they paste it, they put their own name up at the top, then they email it out to everybody and say, check a box, tell us you've read it. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness we've dealt with that, that ethical uh, side of things. Now let's get back to business. Uh, employees see right through this, right? They, they know that this is a check-the-box compliance exercise. So you're really not getting anywhere uh, just by doing those sorts of things. So we took a different path. Uh, I went out actually and interviewed a number of leaders and actually talked to some scientists to get a sense of how can you make a difference. Uh, the first, number one, above all, is it starts with the CEO, starts with the leader. Uh, I like to say that the leader is the thermostat for integrity. You know, not the thermometer. A thermometer takes a temperature. The thermostat sets it. So whatever the CEO does, 
uh, in the way of integrity, talking about doing what's right, talking about having broader stakeholders. This sets the temperature for the entire company to operate in. And everyone operates in that environment. So if a CEO buys into this and wants to make it a part of the company, all things are possible. If a CEO is only going to focus on narrow profit and cutting corners and doing business the old way, it's going to be very hard for a business. So that's the first C, is CEO. The second is you need a real code of ethics, not something downloaded off the internet. You've actually got to do it yourself. Um, One thing that we learned in this process is integrity can be gray. Ethical questions aren't always easy. You know, there's lying, cheating, and stealing. But beyond that, things can get kind of tough, and it can depend on your own perspective, you know, your own life experiences, your socioeconomic background, your religion, what you've seen in your life. You don't want one person creating your code of ethics. It's That's like having Moses coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and saying, here it is, everybody. Thank goodness you, you know, you've got me to figure this out for you. Uh, what you need is you need a cross-functional diverse team. And this speaks to the power of diversity. So at Airbnb, we got a team together with people from all over the world representing uh, folks from finance and customer support and marketing and the like. And we created a code of ethics that was in our own language, that was based on our values as a company and reflecting, I think, a lot of diverse perspectives. Um, and then we went to the third C, which is we communicated it, not with email and a checkbox, but we actually had conversations. Uh, I went and did a world tour, actually talked at every office and had a conversation with employees about it. Uh, and I then took on speaking at every new hire orientation. I learned this from Meg Whitman at eBay, where she used to come in as a CEO every week and have a direct human, authentic conversation with new hires. That sort of authentic, direct talk from a leader has a huge impact on employees and how they view their workplace. Um, The fourth is you've got to have a a way for people to uh, communicate problems. Right. They've got to have a way, a clear reporting system so that if they see problems, they feel they feel comfortable speaking up about it. You don't want a culture where people are uh, quietly sitting at their desk, looking around, fearful to speak. You've got to have openness. The fifth are consequences. There have to be real consistent consequences when there are violations. And the sixth is that you have to have a constant drumbeat of communication. You can't have one company meeting, talk about the code of ethics, and never talk about it again. Um, Adam Silver at the NBA told me that he looks at it like almost like a television marketing campaign. You can't run one ad and expect to get everyone's attention. You've got to run multiple ads. You've got to mix it up. You've got to make it consistent over a period of time so that it soaks in with folks. But when it does, it can be really powerful. I think that the... Uh, ideas that manifest the Airbnb culture um, were pretty powerful. Um, But there was something else that you did that I really liked hearing about within Airbnb. Maybe it was called like Airbnb advisors or something. It was one of the ideas that most resonated with me because it wasn't just in the C-suite. What were the ideas and practices that you implemented around that? Ethics is too important to be owned just by legal and HR. Uh, You know, I think in a lot of companies, uh, that's where ethics lies. In reality, you want ethics to be something that's owned by everyone. 
you know, I had the title chief ethics officer at Airbnb, uh, but it's not a one person job. I, I used to say that I want 5,000 chief ethics officers. So we thought about how do we get people to have a broader sense of ownership over this? Um, legal and HR are actually not in many ways the best place for it because people are scared of lawyers. They're scared of HR. It's like, oh, you know, we don't want to go to legal with this. Um, so what we did was we, uh, we found a number of people around the company really care about integrity and values. This was deeply meaningful to them. And so we co-opted them a bit. We found people who were senior enough to have good judgment and we trusted them, but not so senior that they'd be scary. People from marketing and sales and engineering and the like, they had day jobs. But what they volunteered to do in their spare time was to be ethics ambassadors or ethics advisors. We got everybody together, did a two-day training session, talked in detail about ethics and our code and our values, um, gave everybody some, some really snazzy-looking Patagonia Airbnb ethics jackets, and we sent them out. And we told everybody, you've got an ethics advisor on your team now. Here's the person. If you've got a question, just walk over to their desk and ask them. And we learned that this was really powerful because people were now going to their ethics advisors, someone they knew, a fellow employee, and raising things and asking questions that we never would have heard about if we were depending on just the hotline or just the lawyers. Um, to give you an example, I think in Q1 alone of this year, um, Airbnb ethics advisors got nearly 100 inquiries about a whole host of issues around whether someone could accept a gift or whether accepting free travel would be a conflict of interest. But what we've done with this, I think, is created broader ownership, created an environment where people are comfortable talking to each other in day-to-day -day life. And, you know, Elizabeth, one of the most powerful things about this is after we started the program and people started hearing about ethics advisors, uh, it was quite remarkable. We started getting people writing saying, how can we be ethics advisors too? And I, I, I know that as of uh, earlier this year, when the, the pandemic hit, we had over 75 people volunteered lining up waiting to become ethics advisors in addition to the 30 we had. I mean, that's what you want, right? You want employees to feel like this is something they can own and they can feel empowered by it and contribute. I think that's when you've got the kind of environment of integrity that, that you need to build inside of a company. Well, and it addresses the question, how do you make a culture? Like you can really see that it's not just on the wall. It's actually rising up in the, it's living in the culture. Too, too often you've got those posters, right? They've got the pretty sunset. They've got the tree. They've got the word integrity underneath. And no one ever mentions it. No one ever talks about it. Or they're the compliance posters in the break room with that tiny little four-point font that nobody can read. I think the HR and legal department would panic if they ever saw a group of employees gathered around one of those posters looking at it. The people don't engage that way. They want authentic human conversation. They want people that they can talk to about things. You give them that, and it can be very powerful. I, I had a woman come up to me after one of the, the ethics talks that we do at orientation. Elizabeth, she was literally crying at the end of the talk. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, what did I say? What did I do wrong? And she said, no. She said, Rom, she said, I just came. I used to work at uh, this big tech company in the Valley, you know, one of the one of the large ones. 
And she said, my boss used to be, used to proposition me all the time, pressured me to have a sexual relationship with him. And she said, I, I didn't want to do it, but he wouldn't stop. And I didn't trust my company to do anything about it. She said, so I had to leave. She said, this is my first day at my new job. She said, you have no idea what it means to have a leader standing up in front of the room your first week and talking about how important it is to the company to have an environment where everyone feels like they belong and where they're not going to tolerate behavior like that from managers and leaders. She said, it means the world to me. And that's what you want. You want to reach people with authentic human conversation. That's so great. I, uh, I'm wondering how it's been with COVID and the difficulties with downsizing. And I'm, I know our audience wants to hear what has that been like at Airbnb and how has it been for you? You know, uh, the pandemic hit Airbnb hard, like it did, I think, a number of businesses. You know, I think the business was sailing along great. And then all of a sudden with the pandemic, it was just hit a wall. Uh, and I think that was uh, that was a big moment for the company. You know, we like to say that a crisis reveals a character. I think that's true for all of us as in, in human beings. And I think it's also true with companies. So there are a few things I think we learned through the process. Um, you know, number one, there was no happy talk, right? I think in some companies, I heard stories of leaders whose businesses were severely impacted. Leaders saying, oh, it's all going to be fine. Uh, we're all in this together. Don't worry. Well, you know, the truth is, I think everybody knew that, you know what, maybe we won't all be in this together. Maybe it won't be all okay. And the company might need to, to take some drastic steps. And I think leadership at Airbnb was pretty upfront with people and said, look, we don't know yet. Uh, we have to explore all the options, but they did one thing right away, which was critical. And that is uh, Brian took no salary. Leaders took a significant pay cut. I think when you're in a crisis, it's really important. You know, Simon Sinek says leaders eat last, you know, sort of a reference to the military where, um, you know, the, the commander makes sure that his troops get fed before he eats or she eats. The corollary of that, I think, is in a crisis, leaders have to sacrifice first because that sends a signal that, you know what, this is serious, but that we as leaders need to sacrifice and that sends a signal to everyone that, you know, that it's uh, we're, the leaders are really there and the leaders really care and understand it. And they're not going to ask you to do anything that they're not willing to do. So uh, I think another thing is communication. You know, I, I talked to somebody the other day who said they had not heard from their CEO since the crisis, which struck me as incredible. Um, you know, at Airbnb, uh, we've had weekly meetings by, you know, by video every Thursday with open question and answer from the employees. And, you know, sometimes the questions got tough because, it, you know, people are understandably fearful. But I think hearing directly from leaders and being able to ask questions is critical. Um, you know, Airbnb ultimately did need to resort to layoffs. I mean, you know, the, the business was dramatically impacted and Airbnb had to let go of about a quarter of the, of the, the staff. But I'm, I'm proud of the way that it was done. Uh, people notice the way that things like that are done. I, I think it's possible to ethically lay off employees if that's what you really need in order to keep the business strong and operating. But you need to do it with empathy toward the people who lose their jobs. 
Um, I, I know that there's not only was the company, I think, generous in severance, but they did things that were that sent a signal that we really care about you. They, they paid for a year of health insurance. They even did something I had never seen before, which uh, I heard so much appreciation about. And that was they let people keep their laptops. Now, usually when you're asked to leave a company, the first thing they want is they want their laptop. They want the badge or they want the laptop back. But everybody thought about it and said, you know, why do we need 1,900 laptops? We're downsizing. Having a lot of used laptops won't do us any good. But the employees who are being laid off might need those laptops to search for a job. They're going to be going to homes where their kids may need the only home computer just to be at school or a spouse might need it. So that laptop could be a huge deal for the family to be able to search for a new job. So the company let them keep laptops. Um, little things like that, I think, send a message that you care. They send a message not only to the, the people who leave, but to the communities that are impacted and also to the employees who stay. It's always we're we're in a reformulation um, process thanks to COVID, aren't we? It, the, the world is uh, the world is different and it's testing. It, it's testing leaders, yeah. I think, like never before. I noticed the role of your company inside the company we've been talking about. What about the role of the company outside of the organization? How they contribute to society, provide value, like you mentioned Dyson has stepped up in some particularly interesting. Sure. I mean, Dyson, when there was a shortage of ventilators early in the crisis, you know, Dyson on its own noticed, hey, wait a minute, the way that our vacuum systems operate is very similar to ventilators. And they recognized that, you know what, maybe we can't build ventilators, but we can repair them. There are, are so many thousands and tens of thousands of ventilators that are out of service that were in need of repair. On their own, they the employees downloaded the service manuals and they put out the word that they could repair a number of these ventilators. And they did. And they the first batch that they did, they did a dozen over the first weekend. It was so successful that they took one of their factories and repurposed it so that they could do a thousand a week. So, you know, companies often have resources that if they're willing to think about how those resources can be used to help others, it can be tremendous for the brand and very inspiring for the employees involved. Uh, you know, companies uh, need to be thinking, particularly in a crisis, about how they can contribute. What are their assets? And maybe it's small. Uh, we had a, a, a tremendous movement here in Silicon Valley around snacks. You know, the uh, companies recognized that with everybody going home, there were these offices that were filled with snacks for employees that were just sitting there going stale. While at the same time, there were a series of family shelters that were used to getting food from restaurants that were now closed. They badly needed food. So, even companies that were struggling were able to raise their hand and say, you know what, these snacks, we don't need them anymore, and they can be put to a better use. And they were able to team up with the, the family shelter and get those snacks picked up at the offices and delivered to families in need. And that sort of thing made a big difference. So you know, every little thing you can do in times like this uh, means a lot. That, that sounds funny, right? We need, our, we need our corporations to become more human. Rob, I'm starting to get uh, questions from the field. Um, maybe we'll just kind of weave that in since they there seems to be a demand for asking. Let's do it. Sure. Um, 
There's one from Leanne uh, Kamanovich who says, speaking about corporate purpose, D. Hawk wrote, we are in the midst of a global epidemic, also of institutional failure of organizations unable to achieve the purpose for which they were created. Do you think that this is the cause of problems, the inability to achieve the purpose rather than not paying attention to it? I believe that I believe in the power of people binding together to figure out creative ways to achieve their purpose. What I've seen are companies that are a bit lost. They don't understand their purpose. They haven't thought through their purpose. What or what they've done is they've confused purpose with size. In other words, getting big, getting big fast. Uh, generating revenue, generating market share is not purpose. But I, what I've seen is that companies are equating success to just that. And what they're finding uh, is that the world uh, doesn't appreciate that. The world wants more from them. And I think that where I've seen challenges is that the companies are still operating in the old paradigm of Shareholder value is what matters. Getting big is where I need to focus. Um, Instead of recognizing a broader purpose and a need to do good in the world. And I'll tell you what's fascinating about this, Elizabeth, is that there's not, it's not a trade-off between just making money and doing good. Study after study shows that companies with a purpose, a higher purpose, companies that are perceived to have integrity actually outperform the market. They outperform their competitors. It's interesting, you know, Adam Grant has a great book uh, called Give and Take, talking about how people who give and are thinking about others actually end up doing better themselves than people that are always just trying to take for themselves. I think the the same is true for companies. Companies that think about others and think about their broader stakeholders actually find that the gifts come back to them in the form of more inspired employees, uh, customers that are more loyal and inspired as well. So uh, I don't think of it as a trade-off. I think that our biggest challenge is getting companies to overcome the old way of thinking and get into the, the, the process and the mode of thinking as 21st century companies, where I think the potential for their, their growth uh, is even greater. So as the, in the same way that COVID and the sheltering in place has called on individuals to stop and reflect and think and listen differently, then maybe all of our workplaces need to go through similar processes where we really examine what are our purposes and how is it different than market share. And that's a real, that's a process that it seems like you can offer people some some companies uh, walking through those six steps. It, it's a great time for reflection, right? It's a pause. It's a time to actually reorient yourself. And the world doesn't give you uh, many opportunities like this. Usually the world is moving so quickly. You feel like you don't have time to, to breathe. But now there is a time to reflect a bit and reorient and I think smart companies are taking advantage of that, uh, of this time to do just that. Yeah, breathing. That's, yeah. Uh, that's a, 
a metaphor on many levels today, isn't it? So another question from our audience is uh, from Jillian Manis, who asks, is the board of a company as responsible as a CEO? I mean, ultimately, they're even more responsible, right? Uh, I think it actually can start with the venture capital. Uh, you know, young entrepreneurs often look to their venture capital firm for more than just money. Uh, they're looking to their venture capital firm for direction and advice. And often venture capital has a tremendous influence on young entrepreneurs. So uh, I think it's up to venture capital firms to send a positive, powerful message to entrepreneurs about the importance of not just doing business, but doing business the right way and with a purpose. That's ultimately the board's responsibility as well. I mean, the board ultimately has control over the company. Ultimately, they control who is the CEO of the company. So boards need to deliver this message to CEOs and hold them to it. One way to hold them to it, um, I think, is measurements, metrics. Uh, I've seen in business that you do what you measure. So what do we measure in business today? Well, we've got lots of measurements around uh, how the business is doing. We, we know how many customers we all have. We all know uh, what our revenue numbers and our cost numbers are like. But how many companies are really measuring the health of their other stakeholders and actually making it part of their business plan to improve the health of those stakeholders? That can start with the board saying, you know what? This is what we want to see from you. And this is how we're going to compensate you, CEO, in the future. Not just the financial health of the company, which is important, but also the health of all your stakeholders. Wow. I'm just thinking about how that, what a difference that would make. Wouldn't that matter if a CEO were told by the board that, you know, you're not going to get a bonus this year um, unless you hit certain metrics that are not financial. Uh, I, it was an interesting example of this recently with Novartis. You know, Novartis is a pharmaceutical company that's had several ethical challenges that have been well publicized. Uh, they had a, C, a new CEO um, who recently uh, had, after they took over, um, ethics was supposed to be a big issue and integrity was supposed to be a big part of the company. And what happened? Another integrity issue was recently uh, revealed involving payouts to doctors uh, in exchange for writing prescriptions for Nov uh, Novartis drugs. And what was really, I think, challenging was that the executives at Novartis got huge bonuses because the financial performance of the company was great. But what would have been really interesting would have been if the board had said, you know what, it's so important at this time in our history if that we straighten ourselves out ethically and operate with integrity. And if there's a significant integrity issue that comes out during the year, that would be a disqualifier and there will be no bonuses. Imagine if the CEO and the executive team got that message, how that would cause focus to shift just a little bit away from trying to make as much money as we can and making money in a way that's also got integrity. So what should an ethics or compliance function be measuring then? Well, that's another interesting question. You know, I've had people come to me and say, well, Rob, we don't really have anything to worry about. We've got a hotline and we hardly ever get any complaints. So that must mean we don't have any issues. Um, my sense of it is that everybody's got issues. 
integrity actually comes up in the course of doing business every day. So a hotline with no questions or no reports to me is an employee base that's either not thinking about integrity or even worse, they see problems, but they're afraid. They don't want to report it because they're afraid of what it might mean to their career. I think a healthy sign is actually an active reporting hotline, one that has a number of issues that are not hopefully major issues, but they're hopefully questions that get raised about gray areas because it shows that there's an awareness among employees about some of the challenges. We would look to the ethics advisors. Are people talking to our ethics advisors? And if so, what are they talking about? So there are numbers of things I think that you can measure uh, to, to get a sense of the ethical health of your organization. Another, by the way, are our anonymous employee surveys. Uh, but too often, I think the only one that companies are looking at are how many hotline reports do we have? And unfortunately, I think that might, that might not be the right thing to be watching. What would be the best? Uh, Christiana asked, you do what you measure the best. We've heard that for a long time. So... What would be that best measure then? I would, you know, I would measure things like what are our anonymous employee, what are our employees saying about this? I would create an uh, anonymous surveys where you can simply ask the question, um, do, do you believe that your company operates with integrity? Have you seen um, in t- ethical issues uh, swept under the rug at the company? Would you feel comfortable raising an ethical issue if you saw one? And if you could get honest answers to those questions and start measuring the scores, I think you're going to now get one level deeper than just the hotline reports. Uh, so when you're doing things like that and you're, you're measuring the number of reports ethics advisors are getting um, as, another, as another way to look at this. And then maybe you can also have one more measure of a, um, have you had a significant brand altering integrity issue? And those are the ones you want to avoid. Uh, but those are things that you can put strong incentives in place for managers to make sure don't happen. Uh, those are the sorts of things I would look at. So you could repurpose this idea of um, you're a better manager if you've gone through failure to use those failures to really have deep learning within the company. You, you, you can't be afraid of mistakes. You don't want a culture where people are afraid of mistakes because uh, mistakes are human. And so what ends up happening is you don't end up with a culture uh, of no mistakes. You end up with a culture of no one talks about mistakes and no one learns from mistakes. Another thing I, I like is a culture that actually rewards speaking up. So how many people work at a company where they've actually seen someone publicly rewarded for speaking up about something that's difficult or you know, raising an ethical issue? You know, one thing we did at Airbnb was we created this uh, small award called Integra Yetis. So they're Yeti water bottles. I've got one here. It's got you know, the Integrity branding on it. They're very nice metal water bottles. They're $30, right? Um, and what we would do was if someone raised their hand and asked a good question related to integrity or doing the right thing or spoke up about an issue, we would award them with an Integra Yeti. Uh, and to give you a, a great example of this, one day I was standing at my cube. You know, we we work in these open desking environments at Airbnb pre-pandemic. I was at my computer and 
a, a mid-level manager from IT walked over to me and said, Rob, I noticed that when you left your computer a little while ago, you didn't lock the screen. I said, oh, no. I'm thinking to myself, he's right. Uh, a little embarrassing, right? Now, but of course, I was only gone for three minutes. I went to the restroom. The building's locked. The, the company's secrets weren't endangered. There were lots of excuses I could have made. But I, in the moment, instead of being defensive, um, I thought about what we tried to, to value as a company. And I said to myself, you know something? That must have taken a lot of courage for a mid-level manager in IT to walk over to a member of the executive team and call them out for a security violation. Uh, I like a culture where somebody's comfortable doing that. So I thanked him. He actually showed me a little shortcut on my computer to, to lock it with one touch. And the next time I got a chance in front of a group, I stood up and I told the story about, and I gave him an integrity in front of the group. Everybody applauded. Two and a half years later, he writes me an email. And at the top of the email is warning, vulnerability alert. He went on to write me a, a one-page email telling me that that moment was his proudest moment in his entire career, six years at Airbnb for a $30 water bottle, right? But it was important because it was a very human, authentic way to send a message that we care about speaking up. We want you to speak up. We don't want you to be afraid. Well, a follow-on question to what we're just talking about is uh, related to humor. Like, I'm wondering how the creation of a company culture that's really open and transparent in this way affects our humor. Right now, even the comedians, they, like, they, they don't want to go on stage because everything is so super sensitive that we can't say anything. Um, so the uh, question that's coming in is, uh, what about being able to make fun of ourselves? Like, how do we foster that? I, I know you like to have fun and you know how to have fun. Give us a little advice about how to, how to be in this world this way. I, I love humor. I think humor is a powerful way to make a point that's memorable. And, you know, we, we used it at Airbnb uh, and it, we did it with videos uh, at Airbnb. Believe it or not, I wasn't known as the ethics person. I wasn't known as the lawyer. I was known as the video guy. And the reason is, you know, we challenged ourselves to get beyond these one hour long third party created uh, videos like the sexual harassment video that some third party creates. And you just hit the button and bounce. There's no humor there's a lot of legalese in there and everybody hates it and everybody's forced to watch it. So I actually talked to my kids about this and they laughed. They said, who would ever watch a video more than three or four minutes long? They're on YouTube all the time. And it got me thinking, why can't we make a point about integrity in three minutes? And why can't we have a little fun? About it? So what we started doing was we started making a video every month at Airbnb, a different integrity topic each month. And we did it. There was no budget. In fact, I'll show you the camera. Here's the camera, the video camera that we used to record it, my phone. Uh, the acting was terrible. And I can say that because I was the actor in a number of the, the little uh, three-minute videos. There was no, no uh, 
redeeming acting value at all in this. And the scripts were weak from, for any sort of a, a, a journalist or a, a media perspective. But you know what they were? Um, they were authentic. They featured Airbnb employees acting out different situations in a funny way that demonstrated integrity challenges. And instead of making it a requirement, we sent it out on email and said, watch it if you want to. And then we, we watched in the background to see how many unique people would watch these things. Well, after a few months, we would get 1,000, 2,000, 2,500 unique employees voluntarily watching an ethics video. And then the email started coming in. Rob, when's the next video? Why don't you do a video about this? How can I appear in the video? And again, so now you've got engagement by the broader employees and you're using humor where people are laughing. People, their stories of teams that would get together and binge watch the entire series and laugh and have fun with it. And I, I think that it's actually a powerful tool that, um, you know, certainly we've got to be sensitive when we have humor, but I don't think we can be afraid either because it can be such a powerful tool. So there's another metric for you is how many people watch your uh, silly videos? People watch those silly videos. And uh, uh, I think the more people that watch it, uh, the more impressions you've made on them about the importance of integrity in the company. And when they see an executive in the video laughing and making the point, they know that you're serious. They know you really care about it. And I would hear it whenever I'd walk in between buildings or walk down the hallways. I'd get so many references to people uh, from people about the if there was one about alcohol. It's like, got it, Rob. We're going out drinking. But don't worry, we're only going to have two because that's your rule. You'll never have more than two drinks in any work setting. And there was laughter. But over and over again, I heard from people, you know something, Rob? That was really impactful. It got me to think. And humor can make you do that. I'm getting a couple more this uh, this time from Sloan Robinson. Uh, first question, can a company course correct? At what point is it ever too late? And then the second one, should a company already focusing on values need this training? Or is it the just or just the ones that are having problems? Well, the worst time to do this training is when you're having problems. Uh the, the best time to do this is when there's nothing happening. Because you know what happens when these programs start. You hear the cynical voices, right? Oh, we got to do this because so-and-so screwed up and did something. So now we all have to go through this. Or the only reason they're doing this is because X happened. The best time to do this sort of thing is when nothing's happened. Because that has authenticity to the fact that you're doing it just because you feel like it's the right thing to do. Now, what happens if something goes wrong? And by the way, I, I spoke to Dan Ariely at Duke University about this. You know, Dan's a, a very well-known behavioral psychologist who studies dishonesty and cheating and the like. And I said, what happens you know, when a company has a big ethical incident? Uh, the, the thing he impressed on me is that you've got to make a clean break. It's got to be a, a leader standing up in front of the room and saying, we got off track. This is what's happened. This is not what I want the company to stand for. And starting today, we are going to do the following. And you need a, a self-awareness. A self you need to acknowledge that a mistake was made. 
And you need to, in a very authentic way, a very clear way, send the message that that's not the way that things are going to be done around here anymore. And then you have to act in accordance with your talk. When you do that, you can overcome it, but you can't overdo it. You, you can't basically like ignore it, pretend it didn't happen, say, well, yeah, we will, uh, we'll let it die down. We don't want to inflame things by talking about it. Well, that's the worst thing you can do. You've got to acknowledge it. You've got to take it head on and you've got to affirmatively come up with an intentional plan to make sure it doesn't happen again. So I have somebody here who's really curious about your uh, video um, uh, experience. Uh, they mention how long did you take to do the scripts for these videos and how can you do these videos while we're still working at home? Obviously, right. a light bulb has gone off for somebody yep. about a project yep. that, that could be uh, during shelter in place. So we made a rule when we started doing the videos. We're going to take one hour maximum to shoot the video. So there was no elaborate production. There were no, no ring lights, uh, no special effects. Uh, we, we said we're going to do it in an hour, and what we get out in an hour, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll use that. Uh, scripts, there were no scripts, no formal scripts anyway. Uh, I would come in with some ideas jotted down and some phrases and an overall sort of uh, picture of maybe what it was going to be about. And we would have a half a dozen people throwing in their ideas. They'd come up with a funny line. And then it's like, all right, we got it. Let's roll. And we you know, might take a couple of takes, two or three takes. And then somebody who loved to play with video editing would take it home one evening, splice it up, get it out on email and go. The, the charm of this sort of thing isn't that it looks like Steven Spielberg. The charm of it, in fact, is that it looks rough. It looks like a home video. It looks like some lawyer who's got a cell phone did this. But that's what gives it authenticity. That you, you got to get away from these third-party produced videos. You can't outsource integrity. You can't do it. It feels far better and more powerful when it's homegrown. I think the, um, the subtitle for this talk will be You Can't Outsource Integrity. What a what a great buzz line to take away. So let's ask uh, about um, your experience a little bit. It doesn't sound like you had a, a large department that was working underneath you. Well, when I was the general counsel of the company, we had a, a big team of like over 150. And that's when I started the ethics program. But I took it on as my own side project. You know, there was no budget whatsoever for it. I borrowed a little money from legal's budget with permission to get the Integra Yetis done. Uh, we, we got, I think, 50 Integra Yetis at 30 bucks each. Uh, but otherwise, it was using the phone and using someone's in-house expertise for the videos. Uh, I didn't have a big staff, but I felt that you can actually use that to your advantage. That's when we created the Ethics Advisor Program. If I can't have a team, I'll co-opt everybody else's team. It's actually going to be a lot more powerful anyway if it's something more broadly owned. So if you can do the little homemade videos, you can do the orientation talks. That's free. You can use people from around the company who care about this to be your ambassadors. You really find that this isn't about money. Integrity is really not about money. It's really about heart. It's about caring. And if somebody wanted to become a uh, chief ethics officer, 
what background do you, would you give them? What, what advice do you have for them about how to become that? That's an evolving field, Elizabeth. I, you know what? I, I was looking the other day, a company called Ethisphere looks at the world's most ethical companies. And even at the world's most ethical companies, I think only about a third of those companies have a chief ethics officer. The number's growing, though. I think it's become something more popular in the last few years. And you see people from a lot of different backgrounds. I think law is one natural sort of path. Uh, HR might be another one. But what I think really matters the most is, does the CEO trust your judgment? Right? Does the business trust your judgment? Uh, if people have confidence in your judgment and you have the ability to communicate and to influence people in a positive way, then I think that's the skill set that can be most powerful. But look, the business has to want you in the room as a senior leader. They have to trust your judgment to help them make the tough ethical calls. And frankly, those are skills that can come from anywhere. One of the popular and promising trends at the moment is uh, seeing women leaders, seeing uh, leaders of countries or companies and comparing the actions and successes of those places, um, lining them up as at least correlations with women's leadership. Do you have any thoughts about where that comes in this conversation? Well, I I just saw a survey the other day coming out of the UK. They they looked at the the exchange over there, the FTSE, and they divided the companies into two groups. One group has one-third or more women in leadership. The other group, less than one-third women in leadership. Guess which group performs better financially? Well, it's the group with women, one-third or more of women in leadership. And by the way, it's not even close. The financial performance is 10x better, 10x. So that doesn't surprise me. But what surprises me is that so many companies have not yet figured out that you need gender balance and you need diversity on your leadership team. You need those different voices and different perspectives. Nobody's thought through it all. We all bring different things to the table based on our own life experiences, our own values. Where you're missing out is if everybody in the room looks the same, because then you're going to get you very similar perspectives. In your book about that experience of diversity, that obviously you've experienced the richness of one versus the other. Well, I, I tell, tell a story in the book about uh, how Airbnb faced uh, charges of discrimination. Uh, there were a number of reports uh, that guests online were having trouble getting reservations from hosts, guests of color. They were being discriminated against. So this is something, the reaction inside of Airbnb was shock. Airbnb is a very idealistic company. And the reaction was shock. And I, I thought about it for a minute and said, you know what? The world's filled with discrimination. We shouldn't have been shocked at this. Why are we so shocked? And then I looked around the room. At that time, leadership at Airbnb was not very diverse. There were no black leaders in the room. So that meant none of us, me included, had ever actually experienced discrimination ourselves. So if we haven't experienced discrimination ourselves, of course, we're going to be shocked. But boy, did we miss it. 
we missed the issue. And so we did two things. One, we immediately embarked on a campaign to fix that issue, partnered with civil rights groups, made a number of changes to the website to reduce potential discrimination. Um, And number two, we started working on not just being more diverse inside the company, but even being more inclusive. You know, it's one thing to have a diverse workforce with your statistics of how many people from different races. It's another to make people who feel different feel like they belong. Too often when companies are diverse, even the diverse people inside the company from different backgrounds, they don't feel comfortable speaking up. They feel different and they feel like that's somehow negative. The key is, can you help these diverse voices feel comfortable and help everyone understand that that difference is their superpower? That's the voice that we need at the table. And that's what's going to help prevent future mistakes. So that was a powerful learning lesson for us at Airbnb. So uh, I'm not surprised, though, that we're seeing companies that figure this out and get ahead of the curve are going to be at a real advantage in the market. There's a comment question from uh, Christiana um, from Greece. And she says, Plato and Socrates, actually, the initiators of some of these conversations. How about introducing other cultures' ethics perspectives? A great diversity opportunity for cultures to engage other cultural perspectives. She's right. To me, diversity isn't just about the color of your skin. It's about your background, how you were raised, what part of the world you come from. And when we were working on the code of ethics at Airbnb, I was really worried. How do you come up with a code of ethics that works for a global company? Take take hugging. We actually talked about hugging. Can you hug anybody at work anymore? Well, if you ask people in a number of European countries, they say, are you crazy, Rob? Of course, we hug everybody every day. But you ask people in other parts of the world and they're like, you know, perfectly warm, wonderful people, but like, don't touch me. So how do you listen to these different voices and come up with policies and approaches to ethics um, for a, a global company? I'll tell you one thing, it's challenging, but you're really going to have a big miss if you don't listen to the different voices from all around the world. And maybe that's where our humor conversation comes in. That's right, yeah. So there was a question about the report from uh, UK that you mentioned. Uh, There's an audience member who would love to know um, if you know the name of that report or the one that um, mentions women having a third, if you have a third woman in your. I'll extend this offer to the questioner and to anybody else who attended today. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a note, and I'll send you a link to the article. And by the way, uh, you know I'm on LinkedIn every day. I love talking about integrity-related issues. So if this resonates with anybody, and they want to, to engage in the conversation further or have different questions that we didn't get to today. Uh, I love this stuff. Reach out to me directly. What a great offer. And uh, maybe um, part of what we want to do is um, bring up the fact that your book is just hot off the presses. Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. Thank you for thank you for raising that. Right, the book's uh, just been out a week. I'm really excited about it. So for folks that 
that are really interested in driving integrity into the culture of whatever organization they're in, or even incorporating some integrity into their life. Um, I think hopefully people enjoy it. People tell me that they're surprised when they start reading it. There's no Plato or Socrates. Uh, it's very practical. It uses humor and a lot of stories. So I hope folks enjoy it and, and, uh, and, get, and get a lot from it. And it's fun the way you are. So at this point in the conversation, I would normally mention um, that we only have time for one more question. But since our conversation is virtual, I get to ask the question. <laughs> All right. um, so how optimistic are you about the future? Um, we have lots of uh, e examples um, of difficulties as well as um, good stories. Tell us about how you are feeling in today's world. You've seen the book. I'm an optimistic person. I, I think that the integrity revolution, uh, with uh, so many people stepping up to talk about these issues, is such a positive sign. I think the world's been operating in their narrow lanes for quite a period of time. And that, to me, uh, created so many issues around integrity that the world's finally addressing. And I think we're finally waking up to the fact that we need each other. We all need each other. And what we're seeing, I think, is a very positive sign that people care. People want to change the way we do business. People want and genu genuinely care about other human beings. So I'm very optimistic about uh, the way the world has actually turned in the last several years. And I think we're going to uh, we're going to see a lot, not only from my generation in changing, but the next generation coming up. I think this is the way that they have always thought. This is the way they see the world. And uh, I, I have a lot of confidence in them as well. And that it's good business. It's good business. Well, um, I want to thank you so much for this uh, wonderful conversation that we've had together. Um, I want to thank you, Rob, for joining us today. Now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.